2020 has been a difficult and enlightening year for sure. It's brought some of the biggest challenges that we have ever experienced in our lifetime, and it's brought to light some of the biggest social issues that we are facing. Now, one of my goals here on the Inside Story is to tackle uncomfortable topics so that we can explore both sides of the story so that we can hopefully learn and become more informed on the issues and how people see them differently based on their own experiences. In today's broadcast, I'm talking with Police Sergeant Tony Gonzalez from the Long Branch Police Force in New Jersey. Tony has been a longtime member of my Light Beamers community, and over the years of working with her, she's really discovered her voice and is using it in the most powerful way. In today's world, where we get the news reports of police brutality, these incidents that are coming more and more to light, along with conversations around defunding the police, I knew that this was the perfect time to have Tony on the show. Tony believes there's a lot of problems that can be solved in the police departments and with other first responders if we took more time to talk about stress and mental health and how all of this affects them. So I think you'll be quite surprised by Tony's story. I think you'll be really surprised by her candidness about her own experiences as a police officer, as well as her incredible life-saving idea that she's rolling out to first responders. It's important that we remember that these police officers and first responders come to their jobs as humans. They each have a story, and I know that after listening to Tony's, you may see things in a new light. I know I sure did after this conversation. It really made me stop and think about my own responsibility as a citizen in my community. It will take all of us to solve these big issues, and we have to start by listening to people's stories and experiences. So with that being said, let's get into Tony's story today. Hi, I'm April Adams Pertwee. I'm your host of the Inside Story podcast. I've been telling people stories my entire adult life as a broadcast journalist, video producer, and digital storyteller. These days, you can find me at Light Beamers, where I'm building a community of women who are ready to step into their brave by sharing their story with the world. On the Inside Story podcast, I'm bringing you some of the best stories I'm discovering from both the women inside of my community, as well as from around the streets of the internet. Plus, I'm digging deep to share some of my own stories with you along the way. My hope is that these stories will help encourage you to examine your own story so that you can share it with other people. I have a motto at Light Beamers. When we share our stories, we shine a light. So with that in mind, let's get down to business today and share the light found in this episode. Tony, I am so excited to have you on the Inside Story podcast. If there is anyone that has been on my list for a long time as I as I planned out and mapped this podcast uh, out and planned it and thought about episodes <laughs> and all of that, you know, one of the things is women from my community. There are definitely people that I um, have been able to uh, walk a little bit of your journey with you along in terms of like sharing your story that I want to share with a bigger audience. And so 
you have been on my list since day one. I always knew that I would have you on the podcast because we've been we've been doing this this journey for a few years now, and I've I've been privy to watching you grow and to step out and use your voice in a really really powerful way. And even as as you continue to journey down that storytelling route and using your voice more of your story is even coming forward for you because you know that's what happens when you start telling your story is 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 new developments happen and and you get you gain more clarity about yes. things as you go and that definitely is true for you not just through storytelling but from doing the work that you do really doing the mindfulness work that you do so as i said in the introduction you are a um, a cop in New Jersey, uh, a sergeant in the Long Branch uh, Police Department. You've been there for over twenty three years. Am I correct on that? Um, I've been I've been a, pl- a police officer for twenty four years, but I've been with Long Branch for twenty one because I worked almost twenty one and a half because I worked in another agency for like a uh, two years and a half. Okay, amazing career that you have had. And then prior to joining, and we'll talk a little bit about this, but prior to joining the police department, you actually served in the United States Army. So I want to say, first of all, thank you for your service. Thank you for what you do. Um, Your job is not an easy one, and we're definitely going to talk about that today. (laughs) (laughs) I can't think of a harder job out there than, than being a police officer and being in the work that you do. And also being a female police officer. Yeah, that's a whole nother dynamic and really does add to the story that you have and really the work that you're doing around teaching and encouraging the development of programs around resiliency with police officers. So we're going to get all into that today. Tony has really been dedicating her life the last several years to this work And I know, I feel from you, you really now know that you're living life on purpose because you have really fallen into following the breadcrumbs of your own story that has brought you to this place of sharing this message with other people. So I'm really excited to have you. I'm really honored to be here, April. I really am. So thank you so much for having me on your show. Well, let's let's just take the listener back a little bit so that they can understand these breadcrumbs of your own story that have led you to do this work around teaching resiliency, teaching mindfulness to first responders, police officers, and also building out programs that would go into police departments and other first responding units and things of that nature to help the people who are out on the streets helping others, right? Yes. I know it started uh, when you, well, I guess it probably started when you when you joined the army, you know, you get into um, seeing things that maybe you aren't really prepared to see, even though you know you're signing up for it. But then when you really start to witness things, um, it's a little bit more difficult than what you may have expected. And then, of course, the same is true as becoming a police officer. So will you just kind of take us through what was it like? What was the decision around getting into this line of work? So I really fell into it. I um most people don't believe me when I say it because I really did. I, I was really good at it and I've, and I've been good at it, you know, but most people um, ask me, Hey, how did you become a police officer? And I'm like, well, it's a long story, but um, I needed a job and I just 
um, sent in a form, uh, which is a civil service that my brother had requested. And I sent it in because I needed a, a job. I had, at the time, I had just exited the uh, army, uh, ETS out of the army, and I was working crazy jobs. I was married and I had a little boy. So I was like, I need a job because I was working at the base, but I wasn't making any any money. And I wanted to go to college. I wanted to finish college and all that stuff. So I went ahead and I sent in this application and I wound up scoring very well on it. Uh, my ex-husband and I scored the same, which was really crazy. And we both got an interview. And um, I wind up taking this job. But one of the, you know, the first roadblock, roadblock I should have noticed was because <laughs> there were so many. But the first roadblock was, well, you are all going to the state police academy. So there, the state police academy in New Jersey had a municipal class at the time. And what that meant is, is that you had to live there. Now, I'm thinking, how the heck am I going to live in this police academy with a three-year-old boy? And who's going to help me? you know, do this. Right. Mm -hmm. So long story short, I wind up, my son winds up going to Arkansas where my ex-husband's mother lived. And for those four months, I attended the police academy, which were really super difficult to, to have my son go to another state. And it was just, it was really, really nuts. And how old was your son at the time? He was three. So you sent off your three-year-old son to live with a grandmother while you and your husband entered the police academy because there was no, there was nothing to do with children. Like you had to live there and you had no options. Right. Fascinating. It was crazy because my, my mom, my father was sick at the time. So my mom couldn't do it. Right. Mm -hmm. So my parents couldn't do it. So it was heartbreaking to make that decision. And, and I will tell you in the beginning, I felt like such a piece of crap because I was like, I'm choosing this position, this job over, you know, keeping my son here. But I knew that in doing this, it was going to provide him with a good future and I would be able to make a good living and that my son would have a good life, you know? Yeah. So you obviously got through the police academy and yeah. uh, became, you know, got on, got on the job, so to speak. You got into the, got into the force. And yeah. so can you walk us through what it's like to specifically for you to be a woman? Hmm. This was, you know, 20 some odd years ago. So again, context, right? This was right. not yesterday. This was 20 some odd years ago, joining um, the force as a woman. Yeah, it was not easy. So there's a story that you don't know. And um, it's kind of like wild. So I took this test and my last name was different. It was an American last name, right? I went back to my maiden name. 11 years ago, almost 11 years ago. So when I took the test, um, they had no idea th that I was Hispanic. They just knew that my ex-husband was this white male and they had no idea that his wife was a Hispanic woman born and raised in Long Branch. I'm Puerto Rican descent. So they, they see the list and they go up to my ex-husband and they ask him, oh, your sister's joining the police department? Because I see you guys have the same score. And he doesn't say anything to them. He just says, no, it's my wife. But he doesn't say it's my Puerto Rican wife, right? <laughs> so the craziest part about this was he defended it. And I have to give him props for that. When they found out that I was Puerto Rican, they were like, well, how did that happen? They were like so, totally shocked. They were like, like, like if we were in like 1920, you know, and they're like, well, we met in the army and, and, you know, blah, blah, blah. We went through the whole, he went through the whole story. So when I went for my interview, they were like really shocked because I am very 
Hispanic looking. <laughs> all right. Yeah. There's like nothing about me. That's not, you know, and, uh, and I'm not trying to sound funny, but really like we joke around, we're like, yeah, there's no denying it. And, um, they were like shocked and they were like, well, how did that happen? Like, how did you guys meet? I mean, did your family have a problem with it? Did his family have a problem with it? And I'm like, listen, I'm just here for a job. Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm just here for an interview. And it, it just became this thing where they were talking about it. And I'm like, for years, I never understood why it mattered because it didn't. It didn't matter. Um, you know, it, it just love is love, right? It doesn't matter what a person looks like or who they are or where they're from, you know? Yeah. But. You know, as we know, in our world, these are undercurrents that yes. many people, women, uh, people of different cultures, people of different skin color. I mean, hello, look, here we are 2020 and we're still talking about these things. So which is why, which is why we are discussing this on the inside story. Yes. You know, change can only occur once we start using our voices. And so you get on the job, you and your husband at the time score the same. Yep. They're expecting Tony, the white girl to show up and yeah. Tony, the Puerto Rican shows up. Yeah. And what was it like in those early days of being on the job when you're just there for the job, but then once you really get on the job and you realize, holy cow, this is like serious business. I'm a police officer and a lot of scary stuff happens out there on the job. What was that like? I, I will tell you, I was very shocked by a lot of my experiences when I first came in because I've always had an open mind to the world. I was born and raised in a, in a, in a town that's very multicultural. I never remember anybody saying you're different, right? Mm -hmm. or, or anybody saying this is, this is how it is. My father was very, I don't know, they were just different. My parents just sent us to school. They wanted us to get an education. That was it, right? There was many times that I... I think I didn't, I wasn't prepared for the things that would come out of people's mouths, you know, like, you know, this isn't a place for women. There's some guys that were backwards thinking, or, you know, um, this is a dangerous job. You know, what are you going to do? What are you going to do when someone comes at you? You know, can you defend yourself? And the most disturbing one was you have to prove yourself. And until you prove yourself, no one's really going to really have anything to do with you. And I just found that to be truly disturbing. Um, and it's the, it, it's sad because not everyone treated me like that, but the, the people, the few that do are the ones that stick with you because it's like shocking, you know, like, you're like, what the heck, what did I get into? Um, I did not have a very, very peaceful beginning in my career. I did not. Um, and it was really heartbreaking to go through what I went through because I stood alone. And that is a very, very scary feeling to stand alone against a lot of people. Well, it's also very dangerous for you to be alone in the line of work that you do. Um, I know that there early on in your career, there was a particular incident that has been instrumental in, in your story, yes. so to speak, that, um, that showed you what it was like to be alone yeah. in, as a police officer. Will you kind of talk a little bit about that incident that happened? Sure. Um, that really has started to excavate a lot of layers of your own story. Yes. I, I just want to say that um, it took many years for me to get here. Um, it was not something that I could publicly talk about because I was really in shock, but I was really embarrassed about a lot of things. And I was sad. Um, but what happened was I started in 1996 and back then, 
um, you would start out with a squad and then they, after three months, you would go to another squad. So I was released from training and I was on my own on midnights. And back then you had to do two weeks on and two weeks off. So you would do two weeks of midnights. So I, um, get, I hear a call on the radio uh, for an officer that needs backup. I didn't quite recognize the voice because I was really back back then you're learning everybody's voices. And when you're in training, you were the whole different group of people. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? So things like kind of shift around. And like I said, I didn't really recognize the voice. So anyway, um, I hear, you know, headquarters send me backup and I am on a call already, but I'm clearing up. So I respond with, I'll head, I'll start heading. So I start heading and the guy tells us the location. I hear the location. Headquarters repeats the location. I head over there. When I get there to the location, he said he was at, he wasn't there. I was like, what the heck is going on? I see a man with a broom who is obviously either the owner or the worker. I can't, I couldn't remember. He's sweeping outside. So something happened out there, right? I mm-hmm. said, where is he? Where is, where's the police officer? And he points um, to, to the direction where the, where the, where, where he went. So I, I go around the corner, I jump up in the car. I let headquarters know where I'm at. And then I see a limousine and I see another car, but I don't see a police car. Right. So I'm like, this is very weird. I said, where is the police car? This, and, and to clarify, he was undercover at the time, or it was a street crimes unit or something like that. I'm not even sure. But what you didn't the, know that. I didn't know that. All I know is that I see it. I, I pull up and I get out of my car, right? As I'm getting out of my car, I hear three shots. I'm like, holy, you know what? I'm like, what the hell? So I get back. I go back in the car and I scream into the radio, shots fired, shots fired. And what was really messed up was that I was brand new. So yelling, when you yell into a radio, you cannot make it out. Okay. I think they made it out the second time, but not the initial time. So they was kind of warbled or whatever. They couldn't quite understand you because you're scream you're screaming right. into the microphone, which makes it kind of overblown. Right. Yeah. Right. And so, so and anyway, I get out of my, I get out of the car because I had the door open. I had my gun pulled because I thought that they were shooting at us. Right. So I have everything. So I put my gun back in and I see a body. I see the officer and I see him moving. And then I see him moving people getting people out of the car. So I run over there and I start handcuffing people. And by then all everyone's there, everybody, everybody's there and everybody's pulling people out of the car or whatever. So the guy that I handcuffed is on the ground. He's on his stomach and there's other guys that are handcuffed and the guy's talking to me and I'm trying to tell him to be quiet because this other cop is really, um, he's wound up. And, and I could tell that he's very angry. So I was like, let me just keep this guy quiet so it doesn't escalate, whatever. And I, I'm telling the guy, as I'm telling the guy, listen, just be quiet. I'll talk to you later. I see a foot come out, come back, come forward and hit the guy, kick the guy in the head. Yep. The guy that's down on the ground yep. gets kicked in the head by? By the police officer. By, by the, the police, police officer. officer. So yeah. I get down on the ground and I'm like, totally upset about this and I'm holding the guy and it looks like he's dead. I'm holding, I'm, I'm holding his head. You know how this is a terrible analogy, but you know how, when a, when you have a, a chicken and their neck is like dangling, that's mm-hmm. what it looked like to me. And that's how I, I felt I was like mortified. So I'm like 
trying to get this guy, wake him up. And now this one EMT comes over and he starts doing the smelling salts. The guy's not coming back. And I'm like, this is, this is like the worst day ever. Right. So he finally wakes up and we get it. I call for an ambulance. They canceled the ambulance. And I'm like, I don't know why they canceled the ambulance. I guess in my mind, and I'm going to say this, I think they were trying to cover it up. And I was very upset that he didn't get checked out. But anyway, I wind up transporting this guy back to headquarters to get processed. And the entire time he's talking to me and he's telling me, I know that you're a good person and that you're going to tell the truth. He goes, I know you're going to tell the truth. He goes, I'm not a bad person. He goes, my family's in law enforcement. I couldn't remember if he told me that his father was in law enforcement. I, it's been so long. I couldn't remember, but that's what I'm, I'm remembering. Right. Yep. So yep. I bring him into headquarters and I just leave him there and I get back, I go back on the road. Well, my shift is over. They don't ever ask me anything else. They don't ask me to help with the processing or nothing. I just go back on the road. My shift is over and I feel kind of like messed up and like numb a little bit. I'm like, what the hell just happened? Like, this is not what we're supposed to be doing, blah, blah, blah. So I go home and I tell my ex-husband, I said, listen, something happened last night and I want to talk to you about it. And I tell him and he's like, you better not ever tell anybody. He goes, because if you do, you're going to be a rat. So what happens to me for the next few days is um, I could not sleep. So I was going to work. I could not sleep. And I kept on thinking about it and thinking about it. And it, and it just kept on coming up. But then what happened really was that I started having dreams. I started mm -hmm. having dreams of a man holding me and covered in blood, right? Um, and it gives me the chills even now when I talk about it, because it was something that I never in my wildest dreams would expect to be a memory or even I thought it was a dream. So before I even go to therapy, there's a guy in my job that um, knew there was a couple guys that were really nice guys. And they kept on saying to me, listen, you did the right thing. You're a good person. I just want to let you know you're not alone. But what happens is in between those shifts right? Because we alternated each week. I was working with other people who were not backing me up. So what had happened then, Tony, you had actually, you decided to go and tell. I did. You did. You decided to tell the superiors like, hey, this cop was using excessive force, kicked the guy in the head, should not have been doing that. Like you decided to do the right thing and go and tell yes. the superiors what actually happened on the incident that never actually got reported. Right. So I did. Um, so what happens is I couldn't sleep and I couldn't sleep. So, um, one day I go on a call and the sergeant comes with me on the call. And I said, listen, I really need to talk to you. And he says, what's up? I said, something happened. And I want to tell you what happened. I said, I can't sleep. I said, I feel terrible. Um, I just don't really like what happened. And I tell him, so he was the acting sergeant at the time. So he goes and he says, listen to me. He goes, you're doing the right thing. This guy, you know, he shouldn't have done that. And he, and he even said some other things. I want you to talk to the, to the boss. So they pull me in and I talk to them and I tell them, I said, listen, I said, I'm having a really hard time with this. I said, I cannot sleep. I said, I thought this guy was dead. I said, and I, I want to tell you what happened. Um, I said, I know I'm aware. I'm aware of what I am. 
in people's eyes. I said, but I want to do the right thing. So I told them I had to write a report. And what happened to me after that was just mm-hmm. pure chaos. It was not fun at all. I just want to say it was not fun. Well, because it got out, right? It got out mm-hmm. and people knew in the in the station that um, you had, quote, <laughs> ratted this guy out. And so here you are new uh, as a police officer. You're a woman. Yes. That is an important, you know, layer to the story. And now you have just done the right thing and, and reported something that you were an eyewitness to in terms of this incident. And then, you know, when you start going on calls and you start calling for backup, what happens? Nobody shows up. It happened quite a few times. And I want to tell you, even to this day, it, it, I get choked up about it because I couldn't understand how I did the right thing. Like I saw something that shouldn't have happened and everyone was siding with this guy and not everyone, but enough not to, because listen, people, a lot, of, it takes a lot to be a strong person and stand up to stuff. But then if you stand up too, then you become just like me. So there, there's a lot of people that silently did not do things and they watched it from the, from the sidelines, you know, I, went on calls. I remember going on calls and getting out of my car and dealing with people and not a car showing up. Right. Yeah. And then when I arrested the person, cause I had a couple of incidents where I had to arrest somebody and, and, and I had to be strong. Once they heard that they would show up, but I knew who they were already. So I knew I, I, I I'm like, and, and I started getting tough. I started getting tough. Cause when I started, I wasn't like that. And I started standing up to it and I became every bad word you can think of (laughs) as a label for a woman who's standing up for herself. That's what happened. Yeah. Because you had to. Yep. So this was a critical piece. I know of the evolution of your story because um, what happened during that time is when you were having these dreams of, 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 of you being held by a man who was covered in blood you ended up going to therapy because yeah. someone in your department who was actually a good, you know, like on the, uh, on the up and up, yeah. a really great guy came to you and said, handed you a card and said, go talk to this, to this therapist. And yeah. so you ended up with a really great therapist that, um, that really knows cops very okay. well and was just the perfect person for you. And you ended up in therapy. And I know that ended up being a really fantastic thing. Yes. But again, something that you kind of kept undercover because you didn't want a lot of of your peers to know you were in therapy. Right. I didn't. So in the beginning, I didn't pay with my car, my my insurance card because I didn't want anybody to know. So I was like, maybe they'll know. So I just started paying out of pocket. But then I started using my insurance because it gets expensive, you know? Yeah. But this guy, I will never forget him. I won't shout out his name because I didn't ask if it was okay, but I'll never forget him because he came to me and he said, listen, I've been where you are. Um, I saw some really terrible things happen. He goes, and I started drinking a lot. And what happened, if I can share, was that he responded to a call where this lady, she killed this kid. And his son at the time was the same age as this kid that that this lady killed. So he started um, therapy. and there's always something that happens that triggers something in you. And that's basically what happened to me. When he gave me this card, I looked at it and I'm like, 
I'm like, I'm not doing this. I'm not going to do it right away. And I, and I, I think months went by before I actually decided to call. I think when I called this lady's probably like, who the hell is this weirdo? But anyway, I called and as I'm going to therapy, I am talking to this lady. She's really good. And I tell her, you know, I've been having this weird dream. I said, I've been having this weird dream that someone shot. I heard a shot, right? But there's this man holding me and he's covered in blood. I said, and I could smell the blood. I could smell it. I said, and there's this bright light that I see that it's coming through the, there's like a window in the door. I said, and the bright light is blinding me. You know, so she's like, I'm thinking to myself, she must think I'm really out there and I'm really crazy. But what happens is I keep on having this dream over and over and over again. And it wasn't a dream. It was actually something that happened when I was a little girl. And the order of how I found out, it might be a little off, but I want to tell you that what happened was my mother's brother shot my father. And my father was holding me. And he was holding my brother, my little brother, who's my second brother, because I have another brother. But so you guys, he was holding you when he was shot. Yes. So, so you heard those. You heard the it, shot because you were in the room. Yes. Apparently, because I keep on asking my dad, because even after I spoke on this last um, show, more memories come up, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, I asked my dad a lot of questions. The gun was very close to my head. And what happened was that he wanted to my uncle wanted to shoot me in the head and my father fought him. And that's how my father got shot. So, yeah. So that's been something that came out of therapy then. And when you started, um, you know, of course this, we're condensing time here. This is happening, you know, over several years of being on the force, having this critical incident, hearing shots fired, seeing people covered in blood. That's kind of a, unfortunately like a daily occurrence with you. Uh, with the work that you do. But when this, these things would happen, you were having these like triggering reactions that you couldn't quite explain. And so once you got into therapy and you understood that this was happening or this was something that happened in your childhood, it's did, did it start to make sense to you? Were you like, now I understand why I'm having such a hard time on these calls when I go out. Yeah. So it helped me understand why I was having the anxiety, right? Yeah. Because the shooting of an M16 and the shooting of a, a pistol are two different things. And, you know, a nine, mil- nine millimeter, they're different sounds. So the sound that triggered for me was the handheld, you know, this, this pistol that he used to shoot my dad. It's a different yep. sound, right? I've, I've been to many calls, many murders, many, many calls with blood. There was every one of those did not trigger me. The one that triggered me the most was the one that I went to a couple years back where um, I, I went in. I knew who the person was because he had come into our headquarters and talked to me about what was going to happen. That happened that day. But it was disturbing to see the little girl walking in the blood. There was a little girl there who saw the whole thing and the smell of blood. Mm-hmm. And then the guy, seeing the guy's um, brains everywhere, and I looked at him, and I had to walk out. Um, everything was under control, but I walked out, and that was the part that was really difficult for me because I know that you know in law enforcement, people love to pick at what you do wrong. They don't talk about what you do right. 
they talk about a lot about what you do wrong if you make a mistake or whatever. And it was very difficult because not one person asked me, how are you? How are you doing? Do you need to talk to anybody? No one. But like an, exactly a week later, I was in an office being told everything that I did wrong, how I was a train wreck is what they called me. And just everything just was really, really bad. And it didn't bring back good me memories or feelings or anything um, when that second incident happened. And I think this was around the time that, um, if I recall, Tony, that you and I, that you really came into the Light Beamers community, like kind of in this time frame, yep. at least. Yep. And, you know, when, when I first met you and you kind of landed in my orbit, um, you didn't really have a handle on this story at all. No. Um, I think it was, it was developing kind of behind the scenes. It was like one of those inside stories that you were hanging on to, but it was, it was having a lot of power over you. Right. Well, yeah, 100%. So I did not ever want to talk about it. Right. Yep. Um, yep. There's a lot of things you don't do. And that is talk about these things. And I was afraid. I was afraid of what people were going to say about me. Um, how they were going to judge me. And they were like, oh, who's this weak bitch, blah, blah, blah. And I'm not weak. I was just, I was more afraid of the judgment again and again versus my true story. I wasn't, I wasn't do hiding it because I was hiding details. It was just because I was afraid of what people were going to say about me. Yeah. And that's where a lot of people are with their story, right? Not just cops. I mean, I think you have the extra layer of that because it's just the environment that you're in and there's just a, this level of um, of not really having a whole lot of support. You might have little pockets of support, but by and large, there's a lot of people that, you know, you have to worry about not supporting you. But I think that that's just it where a lot of women don't tell their story and don't share it or don't don't really try to excavate it and understand it is because of just so much fear around and shame and judgment and guilt and all of those things. But what's been so beautiful about kind of all of these pieces coming together, you going into therapy, understanding where some of these triggering things come from, you know, dealing with your life as a cop and actually being a darn good cop because you don't, you know, you're now like, you know, 24 year, your years in, you're the first female sergeant oh, yeah. in your police department. You know, you've done a lot of good things. You, you know, you've had a lot of really great accolades over the years. But at the end of the day, what you started noticing when we started working together was around this fact that there are things happening that nobody's talking about. Yeah. And the fact that you go on these incidents or you have these calls that you go on and you do see people with their b brains blown out and then you go back to the station and all they want to do is tell you the things that you missed right. or that you did wrong right. instead of asking you, are you okay? Do you need help? Right. Because that's not is what's happening. And so this really spurred you into action in a yes. whole new way. So can you talk a little bit about, this is where we get into the resiliency Yeah, because you've seen it, you've seen it yourself. You've, you know, you've been through the, the bouts of anxiety, the bouts of depression, the drinking too much, the going and seeking help. You've seen it with other people that you work with where they're dealing and suppressing their, all of the stuff that they're dealing with on the job in their own way. And usually it's not healthy. It's not the healthy way. It's not the way that is moving someone forward. 
you know, they go and drink too much, get on drugs, start doing other things that are not good, taking their anger out, right? Like kicking a guy in the head when he's already down on the ground, taking that anger out on the job which we're seeing a lot of that in the news, right? Like we, we're we seeing it yeah. still, we still see it. Yep. Nothing has changed. But the thing about it is you're talking about it. Yeah. And you're using your voice now to talk, to try to teach a better way. So let's talk about that. When did that start to come out for you and how, do, you know, what you're doing now to try to change what you've noticed in the departments? So my own experience of, uh of what I dealt with because I felt really upset that day when they brought me in and they, they were telling me that I was a train wreck when my entire career, I have been a great cop and I've done everything right and everything to the way that they wanted it done and above and beyond that. And I really cared about my community. I felt like that day was a day that they cracked into my soul because they were like, you're not good enough for me to even ask you what is wrong. I don't really care, right? So I went home and I cried for a couple of days. I'm not, and I'm not a punk, okay? But I did cry, <laughs> you know? And I, I spoke to some people that I was very close with. And I sat down because I was already in school. I was, getting, I was earning my bachelor's degree in um, health and wellness, right? And I had started talking about stuff on my my blog and my and my blogs and I started talking about health and how it, how officers need to worry about stress and stuff like that. So I'm home and I have this is how you know you're on the right path because the universe is everything's laid out and you you can ignore it but it's still going to come back. So I had to write a paper about how stress affects us as humans, not just first responders, and I decided to um make it about first responders. Right. Mm-hmm. So now I start researching how stress affects first responders. And there weren't a lot of articles out there about how stress affects, affects them. There was other things like um, traumas and stuff like that. But there was a lot of books just on certain things, not just on stress and how it affects us, but also about how the stress within our own agencies has something to do with that stress that we're feeling. And how there's not enough programs out here to to check the mental well-being or health of officers. And what I mean by that is talking about how something affects you can really make a difference. It can help you deal with that trauma. How do I know that? Because I've done it. And I decided it it was very nerve-wracking. I'm not going to lie to you. It was very nerve-wracking to hit record and start talking about this on my page, which is a public page. Yeah. So Tony took to Facebook essentially. Yes. Um, and she, when she came into my community, I'm like, you got to get on video. You got to, yeah. you know, get this message out there. And she was very nervous, like just so scared, not just, not just like normal scared, like a lot of people that I work with about getting visible and sharing their message and sharing their story, but to a whole nother layer because, you know, because of the uniform, yeah. right? Like yeah. because of the uniform, And just like you knew you were going to be talking about things that were going to go against the grain. Yeah. But yet, you know, for the last, what, three years, you have shown up on Facebook every single day for the most part talking about stress for first responders and how to deal with it and what happens when you don't deal with it. Right. Because you've seen it every single day for the last 24 years. Yes. Um, So I want to say this, and it's something that I normally don't even like shout it out. But as a as a 
as a law enforcement officer, right, as a person that that fell into this job and stuff like that, I have a normal life. Like I have a night a life outside of this, right? But in my own home, I may be dealing with some things in my house that I'm taking to work with me. Right. Yep. So I call it on my on my on my Facebook lives, I talk about the book bag effect. That's what I call it. And you have you start out your day with an empty book bag and maybe you have a couple things from your house that could be like really crazy. Like it could be a divorce because I went through an ugly divorce or it could be your kid is acting up in school or maybe your parents are like off the charts. Right. It could be anything. You can't pay a bill. So as you're going through the day, you're putting stuff in this book bag. Right. You get to work and your book bag is halfway full. And now there's crap in your job, right? Not the community, but maybe somebody says something to you in briefing that you don't like, or they're criticizing you or saying something. And now that's filling up. Now all those things are going in that book bag. And then you respond to a call and that book bag is freaking full. And there's that one person that says something to you. And now you're going off on that person. And you're like, and the person probably is not a nice person, but you're going off. And now you're meeting that's meeting the same level and you're going at it, right? I'd be lying to you if I didn't say that I didn't yell at somebody out here at one point, that I wasn't going through a tough divorce and that I couldn't stand what I was going through and that I was maybe on edge. That has to be, people don't understand we're humans, okay? We're human beings and we're being treated like machines. And it is really super important that everyone get treated with some level of respect, just like they want us to do certain things treat those officers as, as, as humans. And that is in the form of mental health. Yeah. This is why it's so important and so relevant right now, as we record this episode in October of 2020, living through this current pandemic, which has caused a lot of tension. Right. We've had a lot of um, news reports that have been widely uh, you know, publicized this past six months with um, with cops being involved in horrendous activity, uh, killing people, a lot of racial tensions that yeah. have come out of it, and a lot of conversations, right? A yeah. lot of really, t- a lot of talk about mental health, mental well-being, um, and, you know, kind of like putting cops on one side and, you know, uh, people of racial different races, you know, mainly African-Americans, Blacks, that's been a lot of it, but I think it really goes across all different lines, but we've kind of pitted them against each other. Yeah. I don't like that. And and nobody likes that, right? Mm -hmm. Like, let's be honest. It makes me extremely uncomfortable. And I sit here as a white woman, you know, Mm -hmm. I've kind of feel like, what what do I get to say in this? Because I'm over here with my white privilege and I fully recognize that I I have it. Um, So I'm trying to figure that part out too. But I do know this, <laughs> that we're never going to figure it out unless we all start having these conversations, yes. uh, right? Which is why I really, really, really wanted to bring you onto the show. I wanted to set it up with your story because Tony is just one woman, one one cop out on the street that brings her own, oh gosh, that that book bag effect, right? Yeah. Like that's really a great analogy, you. but you, you bring your own bag of baggage. Yes to the job every single day. Thankfully, you've been on a journey to really focus on mindfulness and teaching mindfulness to first responders, because that's part of the work that you've been doing is you had to do that work on yourself. You had to figure out some things that were going to help you 
to calm down your anxiety, to heal your depression, to keep you from reaching for, for a bottle of vodka, to keep you from wanting to scream at your children and, you know, bang up somebody else's head, you know, when you're arresting them. You knew you had to do something and you have sought out the tools and resources that have dramatically helped you. And now you're teaching that to other first responders because guess what? Nobody else is doing it, right? Yeah. These programs don't exist inside the police stations. They don't. they don't exist. You go through a critical incident and nobody asks you, no. do you need help? They're over there telling you everything you did wrong. Yeah. And, and so this is so important. And I want to get to, well, obviously, it's such an important conversation no matter where you sit on this, like I hope that anybody listening to this can just can understand that regardless of what you think about all of the, the craziness that's going on in the world right now and some of these really awful incidents that have unfolded, nobody deserves to die for sure. Mm -hmm. But I think we have to understand where some of this rage is coming from and how can we help people so that we can stop it, you know, get to them before it gets to these gets to this level. And that's what you're trying to do, Tony. So let's talk about your resiliency rooms, because uh, this is really groundbreaking what you're doing and what you. you've been able to institute into the state of New Jersey. Thank you. So um, I have been on a path of mindfulness, which I want to say 10 years ago, if anybody even, if I even said to someone, hey, I'm going to get into mindfulness, they were probably chuckled all the way to their houses <laughs> because I was covered in anger. I was very numb. I was not showing people how I was feeling, right? So through all of that, I didn't like how I was feeling. I got sick a couple times and I started reading about healing your body through mindfulness techniques, right? And I'm like, I started researching all this stuff and I started liking it. So I started uh, practicing the breathing techniques and then I started meditating. I got, I, I did all kinds of things and I'm like, this does not work. I, I literally was trying this stuff because I was trying to prove that it didn't work and it worked. Yep. <laughs> so it's, a, it's actually funny because I don't, I, I challenged myself and I actually wound up winning with it. I decided to start doing um, lives on Facebook and I started a, a podcast and all that stuff, which you know about. And um, New Jersey has this summit and I'm like, they announced a summit and I go to the captain and I'm like, I really want to go to this. I want to see what it's about. Because it was about wellness and I had already started on this journey. So I was like, what are they, what are they doing? You know? So anyway, we go, I go to the summit and it was basically the same stuff that I was doing. Right. And I was like, I come back and a captain says, uh, do, did they give you any numbers, uh, for hotlines or anything? Because I want to make sure that we provide our officers with numbers in case, you know, something happens and, and, you know, suicide is real and all this other stuff. And, and I said, yes, sir. I said, there is. I said, but they haven't finished the training. I said, but I have an idea. And he says, what's the idea? And I said, can I talk to you in private? So I had laid out this whole thing in my house. I had laid out this whole thing about what I wanted. It wasn't named a resiliency room. That's what we agreed to name it. Uh, for me, it was just a wellness room. So I started coming up with this idea of um, the same things that I was doing in my home. I was like, we can do this in our police departments, right? We can also... You can have a space for any person, for any first responder, where they can go decompress for a few minutes. And how do I know that works? Because I do it. 
I do it mm -hmm. myself and I had other areas. So my parents live in the town that I work in. I would go to their house and I would just relax for a few minutes when someone got on my last nerve. And when I say that, it's not always people that we deal with that get on our last nerve. It's the people we work with. They're like the biggest pain sometimes, you know? So I came up with this whole thing and I, I explained it to the whole, to the captain. It went months went by before this was instituted. It didn't happen right away. And when it finally came together, he said, write it up. So I wrote it up. I wrote up a whole thing about what the resiliency room is. And it is an area, a space where an officer can go uh, and have their lunch in private. Because, you know, many people out here don't give us the credit that we deserve, right? When we go get a meal, sometimes that meal is not in peace. Sometimes people do things to our meals, you know, and sometimes it's just not a peaceful event. You go to have a meal and someone comes up and there's a problem, right? Or there's a fight or there's something, right? So that the officer can have a, a meal in peace, which are, there's studies done that when you're eating and you're also having in a stressful Stress. event, it does something yep. to your stomach and it causes all kinds of issues. So here's a space where you can go eat and there's a space where you can go meditate if you want during your break, of course, or you can sit and watch a, um, a YouTube uh, meditation, or you can do all kinds of things um, in private. So if there's a critical incident and you call a team of people to talk to this officer, now it's in private. Now that officer doesn't have to worry about, is anybody looking at me as I talk to this team and things like that? So that was where all of this came from, um, is wanting officers to have a place where they can decompress, have a private session if they need to, or just have their meal in peace, which can also be a meditation session if you think about it, you know? Yeah, it's so, it's so, I mean, I'm just sitting here as a civilian, right, as a layperson, like just thinking, man, I mean, for all the rest of us, it, it's not a big deal. Like we have these places, I hope many people have places where they can go and just check out for a minute. But as an officer, you don't have that and it's not really encouraged. It hasn't been encouraged. And so just a simple fact of what you recreated for yourself in your home. Yes. Like when you would come home stressed out from the job, you would go to your area of your house and meditate, mm -hmm. or you would put on essential oils, yes. or you would put on nice music, or you would do a breathing technique. I mean, you have, you know, heard you talk about doing breathing techniques, even in your cop car. Yes. And, you know, just like before you go on to the next call, yep. taking a few minutes yes. to process. But the thing of it is first responders, officers, anybody in this, in this field are not really taught to do this. No. Like there's no education around it. And so they just end up getting all of this pent up anger, yes. which leads to a lot of all these really, really bad things that happen in our world. Yes. And, and really what you're doing is creating, number one, an advocacy program. Yes. And you're creating education by being the voice and going on social media and talking about these things and teaching these techniques to officers and going into the organization and saying, let's build a room. Yes. Let's, let's create a room where this is possible. And this is just the beginning because, I mean, my gosh, there's so many other things yeah. that I know you want to do with this. But it's important to know that this work and what you're doing gained recognition by the attorney general of New Jersey. Yes. So you tell us a little bit about that. Yes. So um, I got a call. Um, actually, my chief got a call and he said, the attorney general wants to talk to you about your idea. And I'm like, get the heck out of here. And he goes, <laughs> yeah, he wants to talk to you. So um, they scheduled it. 
um, and I spoke to him about the resiliency room and what it's about and my ideas for it and, you know, what I expect for, um, for this to provide for not only cops, but first responders across the country. That firemen, EMT, right. anybody in that, in that field right. can come and use this room. Cause it's actually not in the police station. That's an important thing to know. It is not, it is not. And, and that is a key that is key in this because see what happens is most people are untrusting anyway. They feel like when they go to talk to somebody, Oh, they're going to tell everybody what I'm talking to them about, or just in general, they don't feel like they can, do that in a police department because really if you think about it everybody's always watching you and there's cameras everywhere and there's video everywhere so it's key to have it in a place where someone can go and doesn't have to look down the hall to see who's watching me open that door you know what i mean and there's a lot of i want to give credit where credit's due there's a lot of civilians out here who want to help they want to provide you with a place you just have to ask you know and they'll do it there's a lot of people out here who are willing to give services for free for first responders to teach them how to do this stuff. It just has to be, we have to be open to it. Now, I, I hear, I have to say, when I first started doing this, there were people that would make fun of me, right? And I don't care because, I listen, that's nothing. What, how I grew up, that's nothing. So I remember like, they would be like, here comes wellness for you. Here comes wellness for you. And I'm like, yep, that's right. I'm like, and you know what I talked about today? <laughs> and then I would just keep on going, right? Um, it was not an it was not an easy thing to jump into, especially as being a police officer, okay? Because people naturally are they're like, how can you um, have mindfulness and be a tough person at the same time? You can do both. You can really do both because when you think about it, being a police officer, you're doing a job, right? Having mindfulness tools will help you do a better job. It will help you connect to who you are. And keep you calm yes. in situations that are cr- that are crazy, which you guys deal with this all day long, yep. every day on the job. You're being thrown into these really extreme situations. And so keeping officers in control and calm is critical to keeping some of these terrible incidents that we're seeing in the news right now to keep these from happening. Yes. So the attorney general is on board and what is what is happening with these resiliency rooms now so it's it's are more coming down the pipeline or how can people reach out and help you get more into their police station maybe they're listening to this broadcast and they live in california or they live in texas or they live in ohio they don't live in long branch new jersey or they don't live in new jersey period what can they do so i'm really excited because i did build my own website I mean, there might be some glitches in there because I am not the most (laughs) tech savvy person. I've gone back and found so many things and I'm like, whatever. But anyway, I built my website and it's www.itsmetony.com. And what I did was I included Ask Me How, okay? And Mm -hmm. Ask Me How is the resiliency room. And what I've done is I've I've set up free consultations, like a 30-minute consultation that anybody can contact me. And then I will share how, if they're interested in this idea, they can purchase that idea from me at a very, very good price because it is my idea, right? Well, you have the whole program. I mean, it's it's just it's really just teaching other departments how to incorporate this. And there's nothing wrong with you being compensated for that, Tony, because you've done a lot of hard work to get it here. And to be able to provide that and like kind of 
you know, turnkey operation, say, here's how you do it. Here's the manual, Yes. you know, and get a, you know, a police department or a, a, a civic minded person in that community who wants to bring this to their police department or their fire department or the first responders in their community. Yes. It can be done. But this is, again, is where it takes all of us to come forward and say, we need this. Yes. Like our officers need this. Our communities need this. Our country. I agree. I our agree. country needs this. It's in all seriously, we we really need more of this, more of these programs, more of these resiliency rooms. And I will definitely link up Tony's website in the show notes of this episode so that, you know, if her story is spurring you into action. And maybe you you are connected with people in the first responder field and you can relate to some of the tough things that they deal with and some of the ways that they maybe be managing their stress that is not healthy. Then number one, you know, direct them to Tony's social media channels and her podcast because she's teaching them how to do this in a better way, but also reach out to her to see if bringing a resiliency room into your community would be a great option. And I also just want, I really appreciate you uh, saying that, but I want to tell you that the way that I set it up is I ask you basically what the space looks like. And then I give you a list of things that are really important, are really, really important for, for an officer to connect to. And those are mindfulness tools. And in doing that, I created a course that um, I wanted to give to my police department Um so they can have it for officers to go to, which is it leads them through um, a 21 day uh, activity and 21 days. Right. And they go through all all these things that they can do. And they start you start out by identifying what it is that stresses you out, that's stressing you out. And I'm really proud of it because I am going to launch the the program I'm launching in November. But I've had all all these other programs already and they're on the website. Super inexpensive, $22, $47. You go in there and you get this, these two programs that are, that are super, super, super powerful because I've done them myself and I've, I've actually used other people to take them and they love them. Well, absolutely. I mean, a $22 or $47 investment in a local police department. Come on. That's like, I mean, that's just, of course. I mean, I'll, I'll buy one today and give it to my police department locally. I mean, that is incredible. So I just, I, I really, of course, I know you, you know, we've become good friends. We, you've been a dear client of mine. I've loved helping you like any little shape, way or form that I can to help you get your message out there has been um, a real joy on my journey, but I know what you are up to in the world. And I think this stuff is so needed. In fact, I think it was just a few weeks ago that I, I messaged you and I was like, Tony, this you this now is the time now is the time because everything that we keep seeing in the news and everything that's just been unfolding in really just you know just terrible terrible ways we got to do something we got to do better we got to do better as a community we got to do better as a country we got to do better as you know um as just humans and so this is just one small way one woman one woman from long branch new jersey is taking this on and making a difference by using her voice, understanding her story. I don't. I just don't think you would be here doing this if you didn't have the story guiding you all along the way. Had you not had 
that incident when you were three years old and being triggered by that memory as you got into the police force and struggling with your own depression and anxiety and anger, right? Like it's so important, just the journey that you've been on and the way that you are now using your story in a really powerful and positive way to help other people. I just applaud you you. and I love you dearly and I'm so proud of you. Thank you so much. I love you too. I just want to say a couple of things. I just, you know, a lot of times out here, everybody feels like they can't do anything, right? A lot of people sit there and say, I don't understand how this happens and I don't understand why this is happening. But deep down inside, they do, all right? Mm-hmm. And you, everyone, if everyone steps forward and just gives one minute or two minutes of their time and ideas and help, it can make a world of a difference in first responders' lives. You know, we are not machines. And, and, and I'm tired of hearing people say, well, they know what they signed up for. No, we did not, okay? When we sign up for jobs, we don't sign up to see a pure destruction and all this bad stuff happen in front of our eyes, all right? We sign up to help people. So help us, guide us and help us. And we really, really would appreciate that support. Well, you've got my support, my friend. So I much. believe that we don't have to choose sides. We get to help everybody. Yes, I love we that. Can, yeah. Um, and and I, that's what I want part of this podcast to be about is, you know, using these stories and bringing some of my own stories to the forefront so that you know, we just illustrate that it doesn't have to be this or that, that we can choose the and, you know, we get to do both and we get to help both sectors of people. Um, we can, we can heal racial tensions in this country and help our police Absolutely. officers at the same that. time. We don't have to choose and we shouldn't be given this vernacular in our country that we, that we should choose. I love it. Um, so I'm going to leave it at that right there. You're awesome, April. I really appreciate the time and wanting to um, share my story. And um, I just can't wait to see how, how big this grows, this podcast of yours. I'm really happy for you. Well, I can't wait to say the same about you and the mission that you are on to create more resiliency in first responders and teaching them wellness tips so that they can go and serve their communities in a fruitful manner. I thank you so much, Tony Gonzalez. You're the best. From itsmetony.com. I will link up all the information that she has to share in the show notes. You guys go check it out. And Tony, stay safe out there. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Don't forget to give it a review and share this broadcast out with your friends and family. Now, did listening to this episode make you think more about your own story? Are you wondering which parts of your own story are relevant to share with others? This is the question I get asked more than any other. How do I share my story? Which parts of my story are worth sharing with other people? How can I make my story relatable so that others can benefit from it? I've taken my simple process that I've used for years as a journalist and broken it down into a three-part storytelling formula that will help you discover the key components of your own story and how to share it. It's a free resource I've created to help you become a light beamer by sharing your story. Simply go to www.lightbeamers.com and click on the big yellow button on the homepage to download your story formula. I'd love to hear your story too. So be sure to join my free community on Facebook, the Light Beamers community, and share your story with me. 
I can't wait to learn more about you and the story that's inside of you. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you can get notified when our next broadcast is live. You will want to stay tuned to the stories we are lining up for you next. I promise they are so good. As always, Light Beamers, I'm over here cheering for you. This podcast is part of the Sound Advice FM network. Sound Advice FM, women's voices amplified.